Hey folks, it's Jared. We have Brian Clark back on the program today and we're discussing his Hudson Institute report on how naval aviation can regain its edge in the face of a rising China before the decade's out. This episode was edited and produced by Joshua Groover. I'd like to pause here to highlight our local chapters. Whether you're in South Korea, Egypt, Singapore, France, New York, India, or the Caribbean, chances are there's a SimSec local chapter near you. You can find a full listing of the chapters and contact information on our website at simsec.org. So if you're interested, please reach out. Finally, I want to take the opportunity to recommend our partners in the SimSec podcast network, The Bilge Pumps. You can find Alex, Jamie, Drack, and a pile of Iron Brew bottles wherever you download your podcasts. With that, Kimbersman. You're listening to Sea Control, hosted by the Center for International Maritime Security. Aloha, shipmates, and welcome back aboard Sea Control. My guest today is Brian Clark, and we're discussing his paper, co-authored with Timothy Walton, Regaining the High Ground Against China, a Plan to Achieve U.S. Naval Aviation Superiority This Decade. So, Brian, welcome back. Could you remind the listeners about your background, please? Sure. Uh, thanks, Jared. Um, yeah, so I'm a uh, retired submariner, and uh, I work right now at the Hudson Institute, where I'm the director of the Hudson Center for Defense Concepts and Technology. Uh, before Hudson, um, a couple of years ago, uh, I was working at CSBA, uh, the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, where I was for about six or seven years. Done a lot of studies uh, during the time at CSBA and Hudson on fleet architecture, looking at uh, undersea warfare, looking at unmanned systems and electromagnetic warfare. Um, and we do uh, studies for the U.S. government as well as for uh, foundations and with private donations. Uh, and then prior to that, I was um, NWZ in the uh, Navy staff, the director of the CNO's Commander's Action Group. Well, thanks. And as a reminder to the listeners, all opinions are our own and not reflective of any institution with which we might be otherwise associated. So why did you refer to the U.S. Navy and Marine Corps aviation portfolio in the paper as, quote unquote, largely ignored? Yeah, well, there's been a huge amount of attention paid over the last, I would say, decade on uh, the ship count, the shipbuilding plan. The fleet architecture, you know, we've done, I've done a couple of studies, one of which was mandated by Congress and one of which we did uh, a couple of years ago in concert with uh, the Office of the Secretary of Defense, looking at fleet architecture, the ship architecture, you know, of the fleet. And that gets an enormous amount of attention, which, I mean, makes sense in, in a way because it's a lot of money involved there. Obviously, ships are huge capital investments and they really drive the kind of strategy and the kind of posture you can have in the future. But um, Navy in a lot of years spends as much on aviation as it does on ships. And um, in a lot of ways, the aviation portfolio is really what delivers a lot of the effects that the Navy is able to deliver, um, you know, not just carrier aviation, but also what the Marines are able to do with uh, rotary wing, tilt rotary aircraft, and what our surface combatants do with manned and unmanned aircraft. So aircraft are a huge part of, of the Navy and its ability to deliver effects at range. And I think it's gotten kind of short shrift. And when we have paid attention to it, it's been really narrowly focused on the carrier air wing. And I think there's a huge opportunity to just kind of break apart and rebalance the naval aviation portfolio and think of it holistically rather than focusing only on the carrier air wing as the thing that delivers effects for the from the air. So you spend some time at the beginning of the paper spelling out that what, what exactly the problem is that the Navy faces in a sort of confrontation with China. Uh, can you explain the scope of that problem, for example, the sheer quantity of inbound missiles and aircraft naval forces would be confronting? 
Yeah. So the, the, um, we tried to, you know, kind of boil it down to what is the couple of fundamental problems that the Navy is trying to address when it comes to its aviation portfolio, um, but really the naval fleet in general, right? So the biggest challenge they have is if you're facing an opponent like a China, you're going to have to operate at pretty long range from the Chinese coast because of the volume of weapons that China can bring to bear, ballistic missiles, uh, cruise missiles, and actually, most importantly, um, bombs and, and cruise missiles launched from aircraft, because uh, that's a huge amount of the capacity that the PLA is able to bring to bear. And while you know you can argue that ships are you know mobile, they've got self-defenses, they can use counter ISR to try to reduce the ability of a kill chain to work. Um, that all detracts from the ability of a ship, especially an aircraft carrier, to do its job. If it's driving around trying to avoid detection, um, it's probably not able to generate sorties at the same rate it would if it was able to you know operate straight and on a, a course that's appropriate for the you know, launching aircraft. So you know we found that you know if if you have to operate at long range to be able to have the ability to generate the kinds of effects you need to do, well then we need to think about how do we get longer reach from our effectors, whether that's a missile or an aircraft. Um, so if the carrier air wing is going to have to operate, which we found if you look at the analysis in the study, about 1,500 nautical miles from China, at least initially, so it can generate sorties uh, at a reasonable rate. Um, then uh, you're going to need uh, to have aircraft that have uh, at least a thousand mile reach because then they could use a standoff weapon to make the rest of that 1500 nautical mile trip and not necessarily to the Chinese coast. I mean, we're not talking about the Navy, you know, being able to execute mainland strikes like the Air Force would, but you really need the Navy to be able to impact events inside the South and East China seas if the Navy is going to contribute to deterrence of China, because that's really fundamentally what we're trying to do here. And if China doesn't feel like the Navy constitutes any kind of threat, it makes their decision calculus and their options a lot easier. To get that range, then we've got to figure out a way to get all of our strike aircraft out to a thousand miles. Otherwise, you're really limiting the options available to the, the fleet commander. And to do that, the MQ, Navy, Navy's got this new MQ-25 tanker, and because each tanker can support two strike fighters getting to 1,000 miles, that means for 44 strike fighters, you need you know like 20 tankers. <laughs> so that changes the carrier air wing mix substantially, because now that means your carrier is going to be essentially carrying strike fighters and tankers. And it means other aircraft have to come off the uh, the aircraft carrier, which we thought was an opportunity. There's, there's a huge opportunity. It's not just a challenge. And I think we, that's where we get into some of the uses of new technology. Why did you choose a 2030 timeframe? And then how did that choice impact the assumptions and context for the study? Yeah, so we felt like, and this was um, something that a couple of our advisors, we brought in a couple of senior, former uh, aviators, retired aviators to help us think through the assumptions and the questions that we should be researching for the study. And something that they brought up uniformly was the fact that we need to bring the focus into the near term, because they said, we tend to convince ourselves that if we look at a 2040, 2045 timeframe, that things are going to get better because some new technology is going to come along and fix the problem, or we're going to get much better at you know, innovating operationally. Uh, they said, if you bring that timeline into 2030, then we can create, you know, a set of options that are executable in the, within the, you know, within this decade. And that largely have to depend on things that are already in development or already exist, which makes the, the technology assumptions a lot easier. So we felt like that was really important to make it a, a, make it a practical study, you know, from a, in terms of technology uh, introduction, but also something that's relevant to the discussion that's going on about China. Because if we can't come up with a way to make the naval contribution to deterrence relevant within this decade, 
then it may not matter because of what people that are experts on China are saying about China's you know need and ability to to invade Taiwan, which which is going to be a problem this decade as opposed to being a problem in the next decade. What assumptions did you make regarding the fleet size and what recommendations did you make for force posture? Yeah, so to to figure out what the aviation portfolio should look like, you need to first figure out, well, what does the ship portion of the fleet look like? So we assume that the Navy kind of stays on its current course as represented by the last shipbuilding plan, which is, you know, a a slow rebalancing of the force uh, away from a relatively small number of large platforms towards a more a larger force that's got more smaller platforms. So, um, you know, maybe a fewer destroyers and cruisers and more frigates in the surface fleet. You know, in the uh, amphib fleet, you know, introduction of the law at some point um, is going to make you have a fleet that's maybe a little more balanced towards the the smaller size. So we said some of these rebalancings were going to happen. We assumed that the unmanned surface vessel fleet was would start to emerge. So we assumed that that rebalancing would happen, but it would be at the slow pace that the Navy's currently doing. So we didn't assume the ship side of the fleet was going to make any dramatic changes that would allow it to somehow overcome this this range challenge that the Navy finds itself in. How would you change the command and control structure and the approach to the, uh, I'll spell out the acronyms here for the listeners too, and then you can use the acronyms the rest of the way, but the Intelligence Surveillance Reconnaissance or ISR missions and Airborne Early Warning or AEW missions to deal with a peer threat? What we did was we tried to figure out, um, you know, given the uh, the fact that you're going to have to re- recalibrate the, or rebalance the carrier air wing to be mostly strike fighters and uh, tankers. Well, we got to figure out how do we do that air, AEW mission, airborne early warning mission? How do we do that electronic warfare mission? How do we do ASW? All these missions that required other aircraft on the deck uh, to do, those aren't going to be available in large numbers. Uh, it turned out that that was actually a good thing because um, today the Growler, which is our electronic warfare platform of choice in the carrier wing, is pretty limited in range. Um, so to get it out to a thousand miles requires a full MQ-25's load of fuel by itself. So it takes up twice as many MQ-25s to get those uh, growlers out there as it does the strike fighters. Um, And it's also a very vulnerable platform because it's a manned airplane emitting a large amount of electromagnetic energy. Um, Same thing with the E-2 Delta, right? E-2 Delta, a little bit longer range than a a growler, but it's still a big emitter in an environment where people are going to be trying to shoot at it. So we felt like this is an opportunity for the Navy to start rethinking how it does those two missions in particular. And we uh, we advocated leveraging new technology, especially unmanned technology to do that. So take that airborne early warning mission, make it more distributed, You know, do it using unmanned systems like the MQ-4 the Navy's already got, the MQ-9 the Navy, the Marines are going to buy uh, as part of the Navy, using satellites to a degree for some of the kind of long lead airborne early warning. And then um, using the E-2 Delta primarily as a as a quarterback for the, the airborne early warning mission and have it operate closer to the carrier, where it could also manage the uh, missile defense fight. And then we looked at it for electronic warfare, because you can't get that growler to where it's going to be able to go downtown and penetrate anybody's air defense envelope, whether it's a ship or an island out in the South China Sea or you know something inside the Strait of Taiwan. You, you're going to need something that's probably expendable. And so we looked at using um, pro, uh, UAVs from the Skyborg program that are attributable uh, electronic warfare platforms, and then also some of the air-launched effects that are being developed by the Army. So both these programs are pretty far along. The mission packages that would go on them are very mature. So we felt like that was pretty reasonable to say that we could have these unmanned systems doing that electronic warfare mission uh, in the future. 
Uh, what's your proposal for conducting the defensive counter air mission? Because that seems a uh, it seems counterintuitive to me to take the E twos off the carrier and have them operate from somewhere else when they're the ones who are primarily controlling DCA. Right. Yeah. So we we um what we looked at doing was basically rebalancing and taking uh, some of the E twos off. Right. Today uh, the carrier goes to sea with five E twos. That's probably going to go to six in the future. So um, if you take you know, half those and put them ashore and they could operate out of Guam or somewhere in the the third island chain or second island chain, they could fly out and join the carrier because the carrier is actually so far out that it's closer to go to Guam than it is to, you know, you know, go to any other place in the in the Western Pacific. So you could get these E-2s to come off Guam, uh, be refueled by the Air Force tankers that are on Guam and come out, meet the carrier, do a mission, then go back to Guam. And then they could be complemented by having three E-2s that are still on the carrier deck that are able to do that. So you'd have a combination of these ground and, and sea-based E-2s uh, doing that air defense mission. And it, it frees up enough space on the carrier for there to be enough tankers to get that strike fighter load out to a thousand nautical miles. The, then the, the E-2 would be able to kind of quarterback this air defense mission. And the Navy is already moving this direction. When you think about Navy integrated fire control counter air, they already expect surface combatants to be out at a long range away from the carrier, you know, trying to shoot down bombers before they launch their missiles. That could be coordinated by the E-2 Delta. And the E-2 Delta could be you know, communicating with MQ-4s, um, with satellites, with MQ-9s, because they can do line of sight comms to those platforms if they're both out, at altitude which reduces the ability of the Chinese to jam those comms links. So that gives the E-2 the ability to be this airborne quarterback for the air defense mission. And then you know, combine that with using some of the strike fighters from the carrier in a uh, defensive counter air portfolio uh, mission. So they would do basically counter mission, counter missile attack. So they would, they would be defended against incoming cruise missiles. And then you, you already covered a little bit of the EW portion of this next question. I'll ask it anyway. If there's anything you want to tack on, obviously feel free to go ahead. But how would you handle the ASW and EW missions? The ASW, you're talking about removing some of the helicopters from the carrier's deck, I think. And those are, it's like as a former ASW officer, like those dippers coming off the aircraft carrier right. are pretty vital. Yeah. So um, we one thing that you know, we're finding, one of the challenges we're going to have is the Dipper is very capable uh, against submarines, right? The, the active sonar it has is really good. Um, the problem is, is that the helicopter can only get so far away from the ship that's hosting it, whether it's the carrier or one of the, the ships in the Desron. And uh, if it's only going to be able to get, you know, at most maybe 100 miles away and do some search and then have to come back, um, that doesn't help you that much when the submarine's going to have an anti-ship cruise missile that's got a range of at least 200 miles and probably going to be going out to 1,000 miles here, just like we've done with the Maritime Strike Tomahawk. So you could see a future in which um, Chinese submarines have the ability to uh, engage surface combatants at you know, 500, 600 miles. Um, so I got to be able to do ASW out at that kind of range to avoid these surprise attacks occurring. Well, you can't do that with the helicopter. Um, it's hard to do it even with the helicopter off of a, a, a cruiser or a destroyer because those ships have to be positioned to do their missile defense mission as well. And those may not be compatible missions. So we looked at entirely, you know, looking at the doing the ASW mission, mostly from shore. Um, now we currently do that with P-8s. And the problem is that the P-8 is relatively vulnerable. You know, you can't operate that inside the first island chain. It'll get shot down pretty easily. But the Marines are going to be operating MQ-9s out of the first island chain, um, or they'll be coming out to meet the Marines around the first island chain. And MQ-9s can do ASW. They can be equipped with the uh, sonobuoy uh, pods that allow them to deploy sonobuoys. They can uh, actually monitor the sonobuoy field 
field and feed that information back. And we can start using the P8s as a command and control platform, similar to what we would argue doing with the E2 Delta. So now the P8 is managing the ASW fight um, and the P the MQ9s are doing most of the Sonobuoy deployment and monitoring. And then when you have to do an engagement, the PA can go do that engagement and still be the manned platform that's deploying weapons. But that allows you to push that ASW envelope way out to, you know, a thousand miles away from the carrier. So you can catch these submarines coming through the first island chain choke points and hopefully be able to engage them before they, they're able to reach a weapons release point. And then for EW, you know, I talked about how we do that mission with these UAVs. And what we're talking about in the in the study is in terms of deployment of those UAVs, because they're shorter range, obviously, the whole purpose of them is that they're cheap and attritable, right? So um, we'd argue we using the, the uh, Skyborg type UAVs, the UTAP-22, the Mako, and the, and the RQ-58, the Valkyrie, um, deploying those off of amphibious ships because you've got LPDs that are part of the fleet. This would be a great mission for them to do. Those rocket assist launch UAVs could be to, you know, launched off of there and then join up with um, strike packages you know, going into the contested area, whether those strike packages are Navy strike packages or Air Force strike packages. And because this is one of the challenges the Air Force is working through with Skyborg is where do those Skyborg UAVs actually get deployed from? Because they, they aren't going to come from the same place that the bomber's coming from. Um, so we thought that that would be a good way to deploy those. And then they, you could also deploy the air-launched effects UAVs off of the MQ-9s that are being you know, used by the Marines inside the first island chain. And that's consistent with you know the way that the Commandant talks about the inside force uh, and using these MQ-9s is really for this reconnaissance, counter-reconnaissance mission. So reconnaissance would include the ASW mission, which he thinks is really part and parcel of what the Marines should be doing. Um, not doing the ASW itself, but managing the logistics behind the ASW mission. And the P-8 does most of the, the thinking on that. And then the counter-reconnaissance mission by deploying these air-launched effects as part of strike packages that are going to try to defeat enemy air defense systems. What recommended changes did you have for force structure? Yeah, so we, what we proposed was, um, you know, you could you could make this shift by 2030, and it didn't require a dramatic change in the manned force structure. So what we argued was decrementing the amount of uh, Joint Strike Fighters that the Navy and Marine Corps are buying by 10%, um, which would not be a dramatic reduction. Um, and, and the Marine Corps' case, they might be reducing it that amount anyway, because they may not have the same kind of, the same number of ground-based squadrons in the future as they do in the past. So I think decrementing that's a pretty reasonable you know, argument to make. Uh, and then take that money and apply that towards increasing the number of unmanned systems the Navy buys. So buying more MQ-9s, buying these uh, uh, Skyborg unmanned systems, buying the air-launched effects unmanned systems, and then we also talked about buying aerostats, which are relatively inexpensive based on the Google uh, Loon program, which is providing broadband internet right now in South America and other places. Those could be useful as well in terms of uh, passive ISR sensor. So we said that that could be part of our uh, air airborne early warning network um, alongside the MQ-4, the space systems, and the MQ-9. So we th those investments were relatively modest, um, and they could be met by making this relatively small you know, modification in the in the uh, strike fighter portfolio. Um, and you could do that by the twenty thirty timeframe, and at least have at least have enough of this this new portfolio deployed to where you could have it maintained in the Indo Pacific Command theater, even if you haven't you know fully populated it throughout the entire fleet. I'm going to audible a little bit on this last question here. So what is the uh, final makeup that you're proposing for what the wing looks like? And then what modifications and payload changes are required to sort of make this plan a reality? 
the air wing in the in the future, we would argue, should be the 44 strike fighters, which uh, would be, you know, the Navy's current plan, which is essentially to have, you know, like 15 joint strike fighters combined with, you know, about 30 F-18 uh, Super Hornets. Um, and then you'd have um, about 15 to 18 uh, MQ-25s. Uh, because that would be enough to allow you to get all of the ready joint strike fighter or rather strike fighters out to a thousand miles. So that that gives you that option set. So obviously you're not going to be doing those big alpha strikes every time. But if you can get all of your available strike fighters out to a thousand miles, that creates a lot of options for the commander, which makes it a lot harder for an opponent like China to think through how to counter it. Right. So now you've introduced the ability for the Navy to reach into the, the, the South and East China seas from a place where the carrier can operate where it, to a place where it can operate and defend itself. So then uh, to enable that, you've got to reduce your complement of growlers down to about three growlers, which would be focused mostly on air missile defense as part of the air defense mission. So it wouldn't be doing you know downrange sort of penetrating uh, electronic attack. Uh, and then you'd reduce the number of E-2 deltas down to about three, um, and they'd be complemented by shore-based E-2 deltas that would do that air defense uh, command and control mission, as well as that you know managing the the missile defense uh, operation. Um, so that'd be your your carrier air wing of the future, and then your your helicopters would largely be pushed out to the the Desron, and then you would uh, you know they'd be focused mostly on you know kind of the local ISR mission, the sort of backstop ASW mission, uh, and then logistics missions, and then that ASW mission would primarily be done by um, ground based aircraft, whether it's the P eight or the P eight plus the MQ nines uh, doing that together. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time that we that we have for today. I'd like to thank my guest, Brian Clark. Uh, Brian, where can we find you online and what are you working on next? Yeah, so um, we're, you can find me online at the Hudson Institute at uh, Hudson.org. And what I'm working on next is uh, we're completing an undersea warfare study right now, looking at the future of offensive undersea warfare. And uh, that'll be coming out here in a couple of months. Uh, and then we're also finishing up a study on um, uh, electronic attack. So looking at the future of offensive electronic warfare. Well, hopefully we'll be able to talk to you about both those. Both sound interesting. You've also got another one out. Um, I think you collaborated with Trent Hone, among others. Yep. I think Tim Walton was on there again uh, for Learning War. Uh, yes, we just uh, we just completed a study learning. with Trent and Dimitri uh, on uh, learning uh, learning to win, uh, which is basically looking at how the Navy could implement uh, a virtuous cycle of learning to uh, innovate uh, operationally, uh, because um, kind of as we've talked a little bit about here. Um, when you're facing an opponent like China, you can't rely on mass or technological advantage as being the thing that gets you uh, deterrence. You're going to have to think about operational innovation as a, a, a major component of your ability to deter. Yeah, I'm going to go counsel myself because I forgot Dimitri was on there. Dimitri is obviously <laughs> the SimSec director for online content. We'll be listening to this before it goes up. So, you know, it, my, my apologies, Dimitri. We, we forgot <laughs> you. But yeah, uh, very, very cool that he was able to contribute to that for you. Um, but Thank you again for joining us. To listeners, thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time.